Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch's sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com code odyssey. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. I know this program is 70 over 70, but uh, I really wish I were younger. I wish I were 70, but I am ready. I'm 72 years old. I'm 75, miraculously enough. I am 83 years old. I am 88 years old. You know, I'm here at 92. I'll be 94 in May. I'm 101 years old. I am Paul Price. I am 73 years old and I'm living in Tasmania, Australia. To be with someone who has dementia is uh, initially is heartbreaking. <laughs> it almost seems worse than losing a partner to mortality because they're still there, but not there. There's no way to talk it through. It's simply a one's gone and the other's, you know, the other's carrying on. So I came to Australia from the UK because um, I lost my wife and uh, I hated the English winter. And I thought, well, I've got the health and the time to travel. I came to Tasmania for the first time in the Tasmanian summer of 2010. And I'm a great uh, theatre buff. I enjoy going to the theatre and concerts. So I I called into the local uh, ticket office and uh, Gillian was one of the staff. So we met by Kismet. It was just sort of a wholeness to it that was there. And uh, we arranged to go out for coffee and then the rest is history as it were. We both had an interest in international travel. So we had a three to four month European tour. We had a week in Vienna, then we flew to Barcelona, and um, we then flew to Ireland. And so it was in Ireland when um, when I first became aware that Gillian was having some sort of problem, just as the basic thing of going into a cafe. 
I would order my coffee. And she started becoming hesitant about ordering her coffee. Perhaps I may have been a little bit slow there, but I, I just never even considered the possibility that she was suffering or that she was having early signs of dementia. Before Gillian began with uh, dementia, we had a we had a really full-on lifestyle. We were doing something different every day. But uh, Gillian's life now is totally within the home that she is in. And I visit her six days a week. But I have this dilemma about my relationship with Gillian because the situation with, with visas is constantly changing because of COVID. I, I may be compelled to return home to England, so it could be our last six months together. I can still see her enjoying life when we are together. She still understands me. She still laughs a lot when I go on to one of my little spiels. And I think that probably that memory, if I'm away for six months, that memory of, of that will have simply disappeared from her life. And so I'm hoping that at least I'll be able to spend the time with her that we've got left before that happens. Now, Gillian is unaware of what's happening to her. Makes me feel that I've lost another partner, of course. It's like a bereavement, but I wouldn't have not had the relationship because you, you cannot project, you know, I'm not going to be involved with that because it might lead to this. It's just part of life, isn't it? And you realise that you've got to get the most out of what you have left. That was Paul Price. And from Pineapple Street Studios, this is 70 Over 70, a show about making the most of the time we have left. I'm Max Linsky. So here's the thing. We've actually hit 70 people over 70 on the show. And while this isn't our last episode, there's one coming next week that feels pretty personal. This interview is the last one I'm going to do for a while. And it felt right to end by talking to someone who's at a kind of beginning. My guest this week is Dr. Diane Meyer. And I should tell you, Diane isn't 70, not quite yet anyway. Her 70th birthday is in a couple of months. But she is at the end of one chapter of her life. She just retired as the director of the Center to Advance Palliative Care, an organization she founded more than 20 years ago. And she's still figuring out what she'll do next. Diane started her medical career in geriatrics, but after residency, she switched to the then little-known field of palliative care, which focuses on providing relief from the symptoms and stresses of serious illness, both for patients and for their families. At the time, only 5% of hospitals in America had palliative care programs. Today, in large part because of the work Diane has done, over 75% of hospitals do. Because of her, an incalculable number of people have had better lives and better deaths. I wanted to know what working in palliative care has taught Diane about what all of us really need in the most difficult moments and how to talk to each other when we're in them. And I also wanted to know how she's thinking about this next period of her life, how she plans to make the most of it after spending so long helping other people answer those questions themselves. Diane Meyer is 69 years old.
Diane, thank you so much for doing this. Thanks for inviting me. You are unique among our guests. The show is called 70 Over 70. You're in fact 69. <laughs> yeah, but coming up on 70. How's that feel? You ready for 70? Yeah, 70 sounds young to me. I'm a geriatrician. You know? <laughs> a 70-year-old wouldn't get into my practice. Um, 70 is young. I yeah. feel like um, if there's a single motto for this show, that would be it. Yeah, yeah. To start, can you define palliative care? What a great question. Thank you <laughs> for on, asking it. A it's a great question because you didn't take for granted that everyone knows what it is and understands it. And most people really don't. Well, where that question is coming from is that, you know, I've, I've read a lot of your work over the last couple of days and I thought that I understood it before I started doing that. And then over the course of the last couple of days realized that I, I definitely didn't. Right. And you're in very good company. <laughs> don't feel badly. All right. So what's so, your definition? So palliative care is a new medical and nursing specialty actually only about 10 years old, focused on maximizing quality of life for patients and families who are living with a serious illness. And that serious illness could be curable, it could be chronic, or it could be progressive. The point is that we owe each other more than just a narrow focus on the disease itself. The whole person experiences that disease. The whole family experiences that disease. And we're ranging from things like pain and shortness of breath and fatigue and difficulty sleeping and loss of appetite all the way to questions of existential purpose and meaning and legacy and rebuilding one's identity when a bolt from the blue like a serious illness happens. In practice, what does palliative care so, look like? In practice, it's getting to know the human being with a serious illness and saying to that person, you know, tell me what your experience has been like since you were diagnosed with this illness. What's bothering you the most about it? What are you hoping for? What are you worried about? People are very distraught when bad things happen to them, as if they didn't deserve it. Right. Bad things happen, whether you deserve it or not. That's just a fact of the human existence. So there's coming to terms with that for as long as it lasts, and then do it again when there's another setback, which is why it is such gratifying and fascinating work. And difficult work. People always say, isn't it depressing? Isn't it hard? And I think... We certainly confront joy and love and connection to despair and sadness. Um, but I practiced in an era when there was no palliative care, when what we did was focus on the left atrium of the heart right. or the anemia or the kidney problem or more frequently all of those things with a different specialist for each. And the human who contained all those diseases and organs, was completely lost in the process. And I saw a tremendous amount of suffering that wasn't due to anyone's ill intent or desire to cause harm, but it was for lack of seeing the patient as a person. And the field of palliative care grew up in an attempt to rebalance that. 
Right. And the scale of that balance when you started was completely lopsided. It's not like it was 60-40. Yeah. 99-1. 99-1. Yes. There's a story that I've heard you tell that I wonder if you could share about your first day as an intern, which I feel like informs that scale a bit. So I was an intern in Portland, Oregon uh, back in 78. And on the very first day, which is terrifying, because when you're a medical student, you're under supervision every second. You have no autonomous responsibility for patients. And then overnight, you're an MD, you graduate, and everything is your responsibility. So every starting out intern is terrified that we're going to hurt somebody. Right. So on my first day, I met my resident, a spitball, redheaded guy who was, I had to run to keep up with him. And we were starting to go down our list of the patients that were on our service when he got paged to the CCU, the coronary care unit, and started running. It was a a cardiac arrest. Mm -hmm. So I ran after him, ran up the stairs, got into the room where there was a whole team of fellows and anesthesiologists and nurses conducting CPR on a roughly 89-year-old person who had very advanced heart failure. So his heart muscle just wasn't pumping. Mm -hmm. And they were doing chest compressions, and you could hear the ribs cracking. And they were ventilating him with a a balloon on the breathing machine and giving electric shocks to the heart. And someone said, put in a central line, and they looked at me. Hmm. I had never put in a central line. I had no idea how to put in a central line. And I said, I don't know how. And I felt... All my worst fears were coming right, like to be your, true. In your first hour of your first morning. Right, my first hour of my first morning, I was worthless. <laughs> and uh, so somebody else stuck this big needle under his clavicle to get a central line in so we could administer drugs more efficiently. And this went on. And after about 40 minutes, the cardiology fellow did what we call called the code. Mm-hmm. And he said, stop, we're going to stop. Everybody took their gloves off and their gowns off and threw everything on the bed and literally walked out of the room and walked out of the CCU. And here was this half-naked man with needles and lines and catheters and a tube in his throat just left there. And I didn't know what I was supposed to do. Hmm. And I felt like we shouldn't leave him. He had just died, but everyone left, so I left. And as I walked out, I saw an older woman sitting on a chair just inside the door of the unit, and that was his wife. And we just walked by her. No one spoke to her. And that was my introduction to being a doctor. Wow. And what was the message? There was no chance that this man with very advanced heart failure was going to come back. But damn it, we were going to try. If he has a family that cares about him, that's not our job. Your job is only what's happening inside that man's body. 
my job is only to prolong life. That is my only job. And how did that stick with you? I think I was traumatized by it. And I have never forgotten. It's just burned into my memory, that experience. And this even deeper way, I, we, had completely failed him and his wife um, as a human being. And I think it just planted a seed that germinated slowly over the subsequent months and years of training. You know, initially, I just wanted mastery. I just wanted to learn all these things I was supposed to know how to do. Mm. And damn it, I was going to learn it, and I was going to be good at it. So I was competitive, and I was going to, you know, beat them at their own game. But you can't stop seeing what is happening to the patients. You can't not see the suffering. Right. And so you kind of put it away and repress it while you're going through the training process. And so as a medical resident, you have to decide what you want to specialize in. And I decided to specialize in geriatric medicine at the time when that field was brand new and was not considered respectable. And I vividly remember having people say to me, why would you specialize in geriatrics? You could be a cardiologist. Like, right. focusing on the needs of older adults was for idiots, <laughs> right? And obviously not intellectually compelling or important. So there was a real value judgment. And is that about the stakes? Or is it about the fact that people could be uncomfortable around old people? Well, I think it's the latter. Um, I think aging, aging is failure. Aging is failure. What does that mean? Uh, it means that if we were doing our job right, no one would ever have to get old and no one would ever die. You know, that, that is the implicit, unarticulated goal. That's prolonged life. Well, prolonged life, eliminate death. Hmm. Now, in some cases, pediatric leukemia, um, various cancers have been converted from death sentences to chronic diseases because of research. This is a good thing. Yeah. Um, but then we also are looking to see what we can do to prolong life in people who are really at the end of their life hmm. and where their developmental stage is getting prepared to leave. But we're too busy doing more things to them. You know, death is what makes life sweet. The fact that it is finite is a gift in terms of understanding how precious our time on the planet is and how we do have a choice on how we spend that time and what we do with that time. And knowing that it's not infinite helps us take a hold of our lives and pay attention. And why is medicine as it's practiced in this country seemingly so out of touch with that idea? I think we got caught up in, particularly in the 20th century, in all of the miracle cures and technologies that the research investment was allowing us. And I think it's like if we, with enough research, death itself could be defeated. And it's not questioned as to whether this is really the highest social good. 
Is it the highest social good that everyone live forever? And, you know, I'm the first to admit that if I was faced with a serious life-threatening illness, I would want to do everything I could to prolong my life because I love my life and I want to be here. I hope that I would have the courage to know when enough is enough. Hmm. Uh, But I've seen many people who, when they were well, definitely had that courage. And when they were (laughs) sick and facing death, it went away. So even though you've spent all of this time thinking about working with living in that moment for other people, one of the things it's taught you is that you can't really know how you're going to react. You can't really know how you're going to react. I will say that it is a very deeply evolutionary fact that we fight death and we want to live. It's biological. Mm -hmm. And all the intellect in the world probably can't overcome that desire. And a hundred years ago, the you know, most people died around age 50 of infection. Now, in a blink of an evolutionary eye, most people live into their 70s, 80s, or 90s if they get past infancy and childhood. Right. So if you think about it as the goal is like prolong life at all costs, there's a sort of correlated part of that, right? Which is that the hope is to be cured. And one of the ways that I understand palliative care is an attempt to shift that hope away from cure to, I don't don't know, I guess something else, but how do you get people to shift what they're hoping for? That seems so hard to me. It is very hard. And you do have to trust to time and trust to the process and trust to the remarkable resilience of people adjusting to new realities. So the hope for the cure is very persistent and very deep. But when it becomes clear that what we're doing is not curing, we are living with Mm. this serious illness, it is remarkable how people adjust. What has to change in their minds for them to be able to adjust that way? When finitude becomes visible. Mm Mm-hmm. Things that our younger selves would have said would not have been a life worth living. We change our minds. I had a friend with ALS uh, early on in the disease. We would talk a lot. And he never, never would want a ventilator and never would want a feeding tube. He wanted to, you know, be whole. A couple years later, oh, absolutely, he agreed to a ventilator and a feeding tube because that additional time with his kids and his very functioning mind uh, became infinitely precious. As a younger person, I would never want to live like that, which is the problem because we cannot know how we're going to feel in the future when we might need a wheelchair or we might need a cane or we might need dialysis. What seems completely unacceptable to our younger, healthier selves becomes acceptable when the alternative is death. This might be a stretch, but psychologically, how do you connect that to the way that medicine is practiced in this country? I think for many Americans, like healthcare is experienced as a very transactional practice. Absolutely. And, and very short term. And fragmented, yeah. 
I see a connection. I see people willing to traffic with all these specialists in hopes that they will provide something that will give them more time. The right way to do it would be every patient has a primary care clinician who is the quarterback, who is constantly in dialogue with the patient about what's important to them right. and what's worth doing and what's not. Doesn't that seem so far away? Like, can well, you see a world in which that's possible? Maybe. We need, we need a revolution. Um, we need the American people to rise up and say we, we're not going to take this anymore. This healthcare system—it's so—it's all profit-driven. It's a medical-industrial complex, and transactional is the word. You know, patients are a means of income and profit. How did you stick it out in a system that you clearly have so many grievances with? I mean, I understand that you've dedicated your professional life to changing or at least rebalancing. But there also have to be compromises that you have made along the way. Of course. I mean, what compromise is adult life, right? So we can say, I refuse to engage in this. Or you get in there and ameliorate what you can and try to make it better. You know, in the United States, palliative care has spread very broadly for the millions of patients that we now are able to help. So a lot of people are getting care that is so much better than what they were getting before that in spite of the healthcare system. We were able to do something really countercultural right. by speaking to something that is so obvious. And it was so obvious that lots of people gave us money to do it, to spread it. And we created a new specialty. So now doctors coming out of residency are choosing to train in palliative medicine. So I have hope for the future just from seeing these young people that really care about their patients and really want to make things better and are really smart and capable. And they will. Is that why you retired? Yes, actually, it is why I retired. I retired to make room for the next generation. That was explicitly my reasoning. Because I wasn't having any trouble doing my work. Um, you seem like you're doing great. Yeah. You know, I was, I, I stepped down at the top of my game. Was that always your plan? I, I had to get myself there. At, when I turned, I don't know, 65 or something, I started doing succession planning in a formal way and meeting with people. And that like was talking myself into it. <laughs> um, because I, I want, the organization that I started to thrive and survive long into the future. And the worst thing you can do is stay too long and sort of concretize things in the, you know, charismatic founder kind of MO. I just didn't want to make that mistake. And I look at the next generation and it gives me hope because they are going to take over. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. 
from the launcher online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odysseypodcast, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash odysseypodcast now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash odysseypodcast. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launcher online shop stage, to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odyssey podcast all lowercase go to shopify.com slash odyssey podcast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash odyssey podcast discover why critics are calling kingdom of the planet of the apes the best film of the franchise what a wonderful day it's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Doing this work, what have you learned about what humans need that you didn't know when you started? I'm a, um, by nature kind of a loner. 
like if I was offered a choice between going to a cocktail party and staying home with a book and a glass of wine, I would stay home with the book and the glass of wine. So I think it wasn't immediately obvious to me how fundamental human connection, human relationships, love is to thriving. How do you square those things that this is like what you dedicated your life to? And As a professional. As a professional. Yeah. Do you think the fact that you don't want to go to cocktail parties is about how you're spending your days or how you were it spending could your be. days? It could be that when I'm spending my days taking care of patients, I'm talking and listening all day long and I don't want to do more. I want to be quiet. I guess I'm shy a little <laughs> bit and um, maybe a little awkward. Uh, but it really hit me during the pandemic. The exponential increase in suffering that we cause by not letting people visit. Hmm. That is something they will never get back. And we were wrong. Wow, I haven't heard that at all. Yeah, I think it was the wrong choice. I think we should have just masked people up really well. And the price of taking away that human connection is so high not only for the patient, him or herself, but for their survivors and their family. Do you have advice for people who are not practicing medicine for how to have the kind of conversations that you have in palliative care, how to talk to people about the end of their lives or the realization that their lives will end? Like, How do you help people have those conversations? Well, first of all, you can't make someone have the conversation unless they're ready and they want to. So the first thing I do is ask if it's okay if we talk about what's going on. Most people say yes, but a substantial minority say no, I don't want to talk about it. And if you push when they've said no, they will never trust you again and never listen to anything you say again. So the person you're talking to has to set the guidelines and the tone. And so the first skill is learning to understand what that person wants to talk about um, and asking open-ended questions that don't make them feel badly if they don't want to talk about it. So I'll say something like, if it's patients, some of my patients really like to know all the details about what's going on with them medically, and others of my patients prefer a more general outline or want me to talk to someone in their family. Which kind of person are you? So there's no bias. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying you're, you're lesser if right. you don't want to talk about it. I'm just saying some people do A and other people do B. And I would use something similar. If I were talking to a family member, I'd say, and I went through this with both my parents, um, you know, hey, do you, do you want to talk about what's been going on with your health? And... My father was someone who definitely wanted to, and my mother was someone who definitely did not. Um, she just took each day as it came. And did you keep asking your mom versions of that question, or did you let it go? I let it go. I, I um, let her take the lead because it's her life. Is that hard? By the time I needed 
to confront these stages in their lives. I was older and wiser and much more aware of how much I can't control. How did you get more connected to the idea that you're not in control through this work? Like, it feels like it's so designed to provide some... Illusion of control. That's a good way to put it. Well, I think if if your eyes are open and you're practicing medicine, you learn pretty quickly how little control we have. I guess you learned in like the first hour of your first yeah, day, right? Yeah, exactly. And that in our zeal to have control, we may be throwing out the baby with the bathwater, which is what what is important to this person, what is a good life for this person, how can we help this person make the time they have left on the planet, whether it's decades or days, be the best it can be. Are there universal things that for everyone are encompassed in a good life? I would say in general that when people are forced to realize finitude, they very commonly think about what's most important and very commonly think about their families and the people that they're closest to, the people that they love. People that they have often taken for granted or never told how grateful they are to them, how much they love them, never asked forgiveness. All those things suddenly become so obviously important. It's Mm -hmm. like, duh, how did I not realize how important this was? The frame of the serious illness allows much better vision into the things that are important because reality is sitting on our shoulder. Is there like an example that you're thinking of when you say that? Are there things that you have held on to? Yeah, so there was... One patient I vividly remember that we took care of, that palliative care was called in to see after he had been in the hospital for six weeks on a ventilator with um, an advanced pneumonia that wasn't getting better, but conscious and alert, spoke only Spanish, had no one visiting him, Hmm. no next of kin listed in the chart, no phone number. And the primary teams, the interns and residents, kept trying to understand what was important to him and did he want to stay on this ventilator. And he just refused to engage in decisions that would have allowed for any planning for his future. And about six weeks into it, they threw their hands up in the air and called palliative care because, you know, we're the Hail Mary team that when nobody can get through to somebody. So... Our social worker had several conversations with him in Spanish. Um, He communicated by pointing to letters on a board because he couldn't speak because he was intubated. He kept saying, mi hijo, my son, mi hijo. And there was no name of a son or phone number anywhere on the chart. And this social worker did an incredible research job like track down his landlady, track down all kinds of distant connections, and found his son, who was in Arizona, and called him and asked him to come. 
and the son was estranged from the father because the father had been an abuser. He wow. had beaten up the son. He was an alcoholic. Son wanted nothing further to do with him. But when asked to come back, because his father was on his deathbed, he did. He came back. And they spent time together at the bedside. And I think the father asked forgiveness. And the son gave forgiveness. And he died the next day. But he could not die until that was done. And he willed himself to stay there. And it was almost a miracle that we even figured that out. I don't know. To me, that is unbelievably gratifying work. That story exemplifies what this is really all about, right? It's to, it's to make room for patients to do the things that matter most and to make it possible for them to do those things. Do you know what those things are for you now? What do you mean? Well, I think I mean, having thought about this work for as long as you have, having witnessed experiences like that for as long as you have, you know, has it fast forwarded things for you? Like, I, I would like to say yes. <laughs> <laughs> but it's hard to keep your focus on the things that really matter in the press of the day. It's hard when your husband comes home from work to say, you know, I need to tell you how much I appreciate you and how lucky I feel to have you as my husband and how much I love you. We don't do that enough. Um, and... There's probably no better way to use 30 seconds. Do you wish you did it more? Yeah. Have you found more space now that you've retired? I think I'm struggling to figure out what my highest and best use is at this stage of my life. Because it was so clear to you for so long? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so now I'm almost 70. Um, I'm healthy, so I probably have another good 10 to 15 years in me. Um, what, what do I want to do? And I don't know. Do I want to do watercolors and gardening? Doesn't sound like it. I don't know. I just don't know. So I'm trying not to jump to any conclusions. I'm trying to be open to the uncertainty and let a direction emerge as opposed to impose, intellectually impose one. How's that going? It's hard. It's hard to be in that space of uncertainty. And I'm a, I, I, I like to be certain, and <laughs> I like to have a clear direction. And But the times when I have tolerated its absence have been, in many ways, the most fertile times for me and the times when I changed direction in really generative ways because I allowed myself not to know for a period of time. That not knowing, is that something you can practice? Yeah. Well, I, I say this a lot to mentees that not knowing is not a bad thing. It's a generative thing if you stay open to it. And, I, you know, starting to work in the field of palliative care was after a 10-year period of not knowing whether I was going to even stay in medicine. 
And it took me getting back against the wall before the vision for doing something different was something I could act on. And if you look at the literature and surveys and you ask patients, what do you value most in the healthcare system? It's the relationship with their clinicians. It's that human connection that makes people feel seen. And do you think that's a key to um, making the most of the time that you have left? Like, is it essential to that time as well? That's a really good question, because one of the things that has been a consequence of COVID has been being alone most of the time. And I think that I've been struggling with that. I thought I was a loner, as I said, and I've been lonely. And I'm thinking about what to do about that and how to uh, how to correct that. Do you think you'll start going to cocktail parties? I don't think that part of me is going to change. <laughs> um, but I probably will make more effort to be with people and spend time with people and prioritize it. Uh, in a, in a way that I didn't used to and that I didn't need to, perhaps. Because hmm. um, I was busy, busy, busy all the time. <laughs> I have a feeling that this question is going to drive you crazy. But I'm going to ask it anyway. You have won all these awards, Genius Grant. There have been moments of... Um, celebration for this incredible accomplishment and work you have done. But are there ever moments, particularly now, that you've got a little bit more time when, you know, you're pouring yourself a glass of wine and you're about to open your book (laughs) and you think, holy shit, I have changed a lot of people's lives. Do you have access to that? Yeah, I do. I feel really good about it. I'm so glad to hear that. Yeah, I feel really good about it. I can't help but see how much more there is to do, how broken the system is, how hard on patients and families it is. And I keep thinking about what can I do about that? And if I could see a way to make a contribution there other than money, and doing text banks and phone <laughs> banks and sending postcards. And I do all that, but it's just, it feels too indirect and mm-hmm. too small. Do you think you're like, um, you're hoping to um, give yourself space to see what emerges? Exactly. I have to find my way. I just want to be. 70 Over 70 is a production of Pineapple Street Studios, and it's produced by Jess Hackle. Our associate producer is Janelle Anderson. Our editors are Maddie Sprung-Kaiser and Joel Lovell. Research and additional reporting by Charlie Locke. Our mixer is Elliot Adler, and Jenna Weiss-Berman and I are the executive producers. Our theme song is Like a Dream by Francis and the Lights, and the music you're listening to right now is by Arthur Russell, who would have been 70 this year. Original music by Terrence Bernardo. 
Additional music by Noble Kids and music licensing by Dan Kanishkawi. Our cover art is by Myra Kalman, who's 72. And our episode art is by Lynn Staley. She's 74, and she's also my mom. Special thanks to Nick Kwa and Sam Linsky. Thank you, Paul Price. And thank you, Diane Meyer. I'm Max Linsky. Thanks for listening. It's a love.